House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back to the House of Mystery on KKNW 1150 AM Seattle. I'm Al Warren. And I'm Kev Thompson. And here we are. Another day. Uh, we're going to jump into it and we'll do our little chat in the news after after an interview. Um, so now today we uh, are going to talk about Sherlock Holmes and Jack the Ripper. And uh, we know we've talked about Jack quite a bit. <laughs> and Sherlock Holmes. And Sherlock. Or Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Yeah, Mr. Mr. Doyle. <laughs> okay, so now um, this time we're, we're talking about the book um, Sherlock Holmes and the Autumn of Terror. And uh, it was written by Randy Williams, and he's joining us here today. Um, welcome to the show. Hey, hi, Al. Hi, Kevin. Hey, Randy. Welcome. So, you know, I, I, yeah. You know, who could turn this down? You know, I I grew up reading the Sherlock Holmes books. I mean, it's it's debatable whether I actually ever grew up, but I did read them as a boy. <laughs> Well, you know, uh, Kevin Kevin doesn't read, so um, his his mother read it to him. Yes. Yeah. First of all, Randy, let's talk about you. How did you get to uh, writing books? Well, um, I'm I'm involved in the martial arts. Besides um, being an investigator here in Pennsylvania, I'm involved in the martial arts, and I actually started writing martial arts books. My other uh, nine books are are all dealing with the martial art called Wing Chun. It's a form of Chinese Kung Fu that um, Bruce Lee started with. In fact, his top student was my teacher. His name was Ted Wong. And, um, you know, so I started writing in that field. And then when it came time to do something about the Ripper, um, I decided that I would give, give a shot at fictional writing. And this is kind of a, a hybrid between fiction and true crime, which are, are two genres I, I love. And it's, it's my first venture into both of those fields, actually, Wow, that's quite a jump. So uh, how did you decide how to go about doing Jack the Ripper? Like what, what, what was your motivation? Like how did you figure out this was your direction here? Well, motivation, uh, there's a couple of motivations. Number one, um, besides myself and, uh, you know, my co-authors also, which I, I'd like to mention, Dr. Michael Baden, you know, from most people might recognize him from an autopsy TV show on HBO. Right. Oh, yeah. But he's also a Fox News consultant. He worked on, you know, reviewing the Warren Commission uh, analysis of the Kennedy autopsy and a lot of big cases. Uh, the Michael Brown case in Ferguson recently, um, Phil Spector. He's done a lot of big, big cases. And uh, Dr. Cyril Wett, uh, who's the forensic pathologist for Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, also was involved in the Kennedy, both John and Robert Kennedy uh, autopsies, Elvis Presley, O.J. Simpson case, John Benet Ramsey, you know Mary Jo Kopechny, remember the one that went off the bridge with uh, yes. Senator Kennedy. Uh, yes. He was involved in that Honey Von Bulow thing, where, where the one that they made the movie about. I think it, I can't remember the name of the movie, but it was her husband uh, Claude that was on trial for for her murder. He was involved with the Jeffrey McDonald, you know the Green Beret guy, who supposedly killed his whole family and blamed it on hippies. Um, the way Bill Branch Davidian, lots of big cases, Vincent Foster. And then Dr. Henry C. Lee, last but not least, um, who was also involved in, you know, his main, his main claim to fame right now is probably the OJ case. He's the, the Chinese uh, forensic criminalist who uh, basically stuck his hand up and said, something's wrong here with the blood evidence. Yeah. You know, and he, he involved in a lot of the big cases, the same cases I named earlier, as well as, you know, he was responsible for the safe recovery of Elizabeth Smart, the one that was kidnapped in Utah. Because when you ask me what motivated me, um, all of us are, are motivated by similar things. Uh, we were all um, drawn into criminology by an interest in Sherlock Holmes since we were kids and an interest in the Jack the Ripper case. But more than anything, we're sort of, you know, they have this term everyone throws around now, and it's usually disparaging, social justice warriors. We're, we're not what you would classify as social justice warriors, but I think maybe just justice warriors. You know, we we want we really wanted to bring closure to this case. It's probably, arguably, the world's greatest murder mystery. And the thing that that strikes us the most about it 
is that in this particular case, the, the women killed by Jack the Ripper may be the prototype for the whole blame the victim syndrome. You know, we, we want justice for them. There's no statute of limitations on murder, and there's no such thing as a perfect crime, and the Ripper murders are no exception. There, there's always evidence left behind that the right people have to uncover them. And, and we, you know, the, the evidence. And we are those people. Um, we, we strongly believe that these women deserve justice. And so that was really the motivating factor of, I can speak for myself, definitely for me, and, and I think I can speak for my co-authors as well. And speaking of the co-authors, how did you get them on board? Mm -hmm. Well, let me tell you. Um, what happened was I was thrown together with Dr. Michael Baden on a case he was on here in Northeast Pennsylvania, and I was there with the district attorney's office. And Dr. Baden was testifying. He had been the forensic pathologist involved in the initial case back in 2012. And so he was in town, and uh, he was set to testify. And I was in court sitting next to him after having had dinner with him the night before with the, uh, you know, on a uh, sort of a briefing dinner. And while uh, we were in the courtroom, the judge decided that Dr. Baden would not be allowed to sit in on the trial prior to his own testimony. It, it turned out it, it probably wasn't a good judgment, but, but the district attorney wasn't going to fight that battle. So they excluded uh, Dr. Baden from the courtroom, and the district attorney, um, who's a friend of mine, Sam Sanguidolce, he, um, he asked me if I wouldn't mind keeping Dr. Baden company for a couple hours while he was excluded. So who's going to say no to that, right? Yeah. Um, I was thrilled. So I, I got sent to a kind of a war room with Dr. Baden, and we sat there and talked a little bit about his famous cases. He showed me some really gross slides of some of the old autopsies that he's done. And we talked a lot about uh, a lot of things, and it came up that his brother is actually an enthusiast in the same martial art that I'm involved in. And his brother was familiar with my work. So we, I kind of got this, I got Dr. Baden's ear that way. And so after a little while of talking, kind of run out of things to talk about, I thought, this is my big chance. And I thought, Dr. Biden, can I just bounce something off you? And he said, sure, you know, got nothing else to do. I said, um, listen, what would you say if I told you I had solved the Jack the Ripper murders? And he mm -hmm. said, mm, well, uh, you know, I'd probably tell you you were crazy, but knowing your background and knowing who you are from the martial arts, you know, I'll give you five minutes. Let's hear it. So I said, okay, great. You know, I'm, I'm going to share with you what, I, what I've uncovered, and I think you're going to be amazed. And he said, all right, well, let's hear it. He said, who was Jack the Ripper? And I said, well, it wasn't just one man. And he said, okay, you've got my attention. Um, how many men was it? I said, three. And he said, hmm, well, there's some, there's some basis for that. Now, unbeknownst to me, Michael Baden had been sent or had been sent for by the British government in the 1960s to go to England and solve the Ripper crimes with all the evidence they had. And he wasn't able to do it. He tried his best, a couple of weeks, couldn't do it. So he's very familiar with every aspect of the case. So he says, all right, tell me who your, your main Ripper was. And I said, Louis Deemschutz. And Dr. Baden said, oh, you mean the um, president of the International Working Men's Educational Club who found the body of Elizabeth Stride outside his club in the gateway the night of the double event? And I said, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, him. <laughs> he says, okay, um, you're going to have to work pretty hard to convince me of that one because he was with the police when the second murder took place. And I said, I'm fully aware of that, Dr. Baden, and I can absolutely show you how it was still him and how it was done. So he said, all right, well, let's hear it. So I presented him my case, gave him the evidence that I've uncovered that I'm going to share with, with your listeners today. And by the time I was done, he said, if you can substantiate, if, if I can independently substantiate everything you've told me today, you have absolutely cracked this case, son. And he said, so what I want is I want all of your case notes on my desk tomorrow morning. He says, I'm gonna review it. I'm too busy to do so now because I gotta testify and then I gotta fly out. He said, but if I read through your case notes and I check your facts and I find that you're correct in your facts, then we are going to blow this case wide open. And so I heard from him probably two days later and he said, 
you've absolutely cracked it. We've got to get Henry and Cyril involved. So that was an honor. I mean, first of all, that he would even hear you out. But, oh, yeah, yeah. Now, but he's convinced that you've cracked it as well? Well, his name's on my book. He's my co-author. Well, he's... Yeah, but I mean, you know, at this point in the story. Oh, okay. Well, first of all, um, Dr. Biden was approached by a very, very well-known ripperologist is the term. I'm sure your, your audience is familiar. Um, someone who's published a number of books that are bestsellers in the ripper genre was approached uh, by that author to join in the book, in their book. And Dr. Bodden, after having read the case presented, said no. And that same author then approached Dr. Wecht and Dr. Lee, who also refused for the same reasons, lack of evidence. Now, when Dr. Bodden agreed that I had cracked it and presented my case to Dr. Wecht and Dr. Lee, both of them agreed as well that I've cracked the case and wanted to get on board with me to do this book. Yeah. Well, I mean, I could guess that was Patricia, um, <laughs> but, you know. Um, so what did, what did the other doctors bring to it? Like, what was, what was Dr. Lee there for? Like, what did he actually um, add to the, to the uh, evidence? Dr. Lee's specialty, among others, is uh, trace evidence and the recreation of crimes based on the crime scene based on the evidence left behind, you know, blood spatter, um, positioning of the victim, uh, positioning of perhaps murder weapons and, and other sorts of, of evidence and eyewitness testimony when there is such. Dr. Lee specializes in recreating how these murders actually took place. And so case of, of Dr. Lee, what he was able to do is he was able to help me write the murders as they happened. And that, in turn, led to other evidence for me and other sort of um, revelations because when I realized the order in which things were committed or when the murder started and where it ended and some of the facts about the crime scene, it helped me to deduce other things about the evidence. So what did Dr. Um, Weck give to you? Dr. Weck primarily analyzed the coroner's reports from the original doctors involved, Dr. Blackwell, Dr. Baxter Phillips, Dr. Openshaw, um, some of the original, all of the original doctors, uh, Frederick Brown, Gordon Brown. Uh, Dr. Weck reviewed all of their statements, all of their reports, and gave me his interpretation of some of the facts, which didn't always necessarily agree with what the original doctors thought. Because back in those days, for example, they thought you could assign handedness to a, to a uh, perpetrator, left-handedness, right-handedness. And my doctors are of the opinion that that is almost impossible to really do. So there were certain elements that were decided by the doctors back then that my doctors didn't necessarily agree with. Even the doctors back then didn't agree on things like, did this guy have a surgical background? Was this guy a medical man? Some said yes, some said no. My doctors unequivocally say no, as, as do I. But yeah. who am I, after all? Yeah. Well, you know, I've heard both sides, and I've heard arguments for both. So, um, Plus, I would say the doctors back then, they, they still weren't even doing fingerprints. No, no, that started just a little bit after the Ripper case. Yeah. So, you know, keep in mind, though, you know, here in northeast Pennsylvania, there, there's a lot of guys that hunt. And some of these guys maybe don't even have a high school education, but they can skin a deer and they can remove all the vital organs without breaking any of them and without spilling much blood. And, and why? Not because they have surgical, because they have experience, you know, with, with the actual uh, taking or opening of a deer and taking out, out of the organs. Yeah, that, but that works, that works for the actual um, uh, function of doing it, for the physical part. But... Um, to me, to go out and, and to uh, kill a deer and hang them, uh, uh, you know, and do, do my typical uh, hunting thing is a lot different than uh, taking a female and, and cutting her uh, uterus out. Sure it is, but, you know, it, it, the process of learning how to do it comes from an escalation of violence from earlier crimes where it wasn't quite as precisely done 
and finally ending up with the ability to do so relatively easily. Okay. So, so, you're, so then your contention is there's going to be some people that um, were killed beforehand with the same sort of style, but just not as well. Right. The, if you look at the progression of violence, now, I'm of the opinion, and I have facts to, to back that up, which I'll share with you, that there were many more than the five canonical murders that, you know, most people generally agree upon, although in the Ripper community, very few people agree on everything, Yeah. if yeah, anything. That's true. Yeah. Or, you know, but, but we are of the opinion that there were many more murders than the five, and that the violence escalated as is always the case in serial murder. The, the violence escalates. Most serial killers, you know, start out with the, the fire starting and the cruelty to animals and the bedwetting. And, you know, it, it eventually goes to, uh, you know, burglaries and then assaults and then possibly sexual assault before it becomes murder. And the violence tends to accelerate or escalate as the murders progress. Yeah, all the markers and indicators of a sociopath. Yes. Yeah. Now, now, going back to the hunting, um, that's, a, that's a really good point. As, you know, hunters process their deer right there in the woods, you know, hang them up, slice them, and remove the organs, as you said. I mean, that's a really, really good point. But as we've done these interviews, I think one of the most impressive things about Jack the Ripper that everybody agrees on and why they lend towards a surgical, you know, history is the speed and accuracy with which he was able to do that. I mean, well, whereas I out, out in the woods with a deer, you've got, you know, as much time as you need, but you're in the middle of the city with a, a woman. It's not going to be quiet about this. No, uh, it wouldn't. But if, at the same time, if you've got more than one guy and you've got one guy standing guard and holding a light for you, you might be able to do things a lot quicker than people would expect someone to do by himself in the dark. Okay, so you're suggesting it was actually teamwork, not just different three independent people doing it. Um, no, it was three men working as a team. Okay, mm. um, I didn't know that. So let's that <laughs> let's, makes a difference. Yeah, so let's start that out. Let's start out with um, how it started for you. Who do you think the first victim was that you were able to discover, and? Uh, how did these guys get together and decide to do to whoever they did it to? Well, that, those are big questions. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they have to be tackled separately. First of all, let me tackle the second half of your question first, okay. which is how did they get together and what made them choose these victims? They were all members of a, of a men's club, which was called the International Working Men's Educational Club. That was actually anything but an educational club. It was the scene of one of the murders in the double event, and the person who found the body of Elizabeth Stride was a man named Louis Deemschutz, who was the steward of that club. The other two men that found the body with Deemschutz were members of that club and his wife. Now, all four of them were subsequently arrested in a violent crime that took place six months after the double event and had four startling coincidences with the double event. And that's what put me on to them. Now, they were, I believe, funded. I believe the whole project was funded, financed, was actually brainstormed and financed by a fourth man called Prince Peter Kropotkin, who was a Russian anarchist expelled from Russia, had been imprisoned multiple times for uh, contracting the murders of political enemies, including the Tsar of Russia. He was imprisoned and exiled also from Switzerland under suspicion of the assass or, uh, taking part in the conspiracy to assassinate political enemies. So we have a guy here who has a history of paying people to kill his political enemies. Now, in this case, he fund founded and funded the International Working Men's Educational Club, which was really a socialist gathering place whose main objective was the downfall of the British Empire. It's all in the records. You can find it for yourself. Now, Prince Kropotkin, I believe, brought Louis Deemschutz from Russia specifically for this purpose and put him in place as the steward of this club. Deemschutz and the other two that I mentioned found the body of Elizabeth Stride. We know for a fact that many, many murderers since Jack the Ripper 
have attempted to insert themselves into the investigation uh, by finding a body or other means. And we're talking about Ted Bundy, the BTK killer, John Wayne Gacy, the Atlanta child murderer, Wayne Williams, Gary Ridgway, for example, Edmund so, Kemper, guys that were you know, early in the investigation talked to and let go, considered or discounted. Now, Louis Deemschitz was no different. He found, quote unquote, found the body, and he had these guys with him. The, the very first four out the door at the club, although there were 20 some people inside, the first four out the door were Deemschitz, his wife, and the two men I mentioned. Kozbrodsky, Isaac Kozbrodsky, a 17-year-old, and Samuel Friedman, a 42-year-old. Did they consciously decide that they were going to do this on a regular basis? Yes. The, the entire operation, and I believe it was a terrorist operation motivated by race, religion, and politics, they were terror attacks similar to the way ISIS is doing things today. The, the main enemies of, of, of the anarchist-slash-socialist cause are capitalism and Christianity. You know, according to Karl Marx's 1844 treatise on economics and philosophy, the, that prostitution is the most offensive and outrageous exploitation of human beings possible. They hated prostitution. Not prostitutes, prostitution. They used these crimes as a form of propaganda, anti-capitalism, anti-Catholicism, or Christianity, Propaganda, And they targeted prostitutes for the reason that prostitute murders then and now are very salacious. They, you know, they are, they attract the public attention. Sex sells. They looked at these prostitutes and, and in fact referred to them in their own Hebrew newspaper, which I've translated. They referred to these prostitutes as martyrs, meaning women who have died for their cause, usually religious. I think that they thought of these prostitutes as martyrs in a cause. I believe they actually wanted to alleviate Whitechapel of prostitution and as well as the what was called the sweating system, which was a form of almost slavery, where the Jewish people were were paid slave wages for slave labor and slave conditions and forced to live in the worst part of London, which was Whitechapel. And I think what they wanted to do was use these salacious murders of prostitutes and they considered these women martyrs. They were going to die for a cause. Thirteen of you are going to have to die so that many, many more can, can actually benefit. I think that they did this to draw the world's attention to Whitechapel, which they were very successful in doing, as a form, as I said, of propaganda, which is near and dear to the communist, anarchist, socialist agenda. Wow. I, I don't even know what to say. Well, um, you know, first of all, I think that the uh, area of Whitechapel was, was uh, to kill even 13 prostitutes. It wouldn't even make a scratch in it. It wouldn't even be no. noticed. It wouldn't even be noticed. And, and because well, we're talking, no, people were, people were laying on the streets uh, all over the place. People were, were going for money, normal, well, I don't say normal, but poor people were selling their, their services that were not even prostitutes. It was so, right, for, for so, close-to-stale bread. It was commonplace. It was, it was happening all day, every day, and hundreds and hundreds. It was sort of similar to how many people are dying on opiates right now. It was just, uh, it, it was more people hooking than there was not. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm just, I'm just, I'm always going to play the opposite here. But I was just going to say that for for me, with 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 going out in the street and just going to the corner bakery, I would see probably 50 people uh, doing something wrong in Whitechapel back then, and um, I, I don't know that it even put a dent in the uh, amount of prostitution going on because they needed to do no. it to survive. Well, right. Even when they were scared to death of that they could be the next victim, they still went out there and did it because they had no other way to, to pay for their DOS money, their rent money, or right. something to eat, someplace to sleep. So they, they continued. But it really wasn't designed, I don't believe, to deter the prostitutes from doing what they were doing. It was more designed to bring the world's attention to this, this impoverished, diseased area of Whitechapel where there was homelessness and crime and prostitution, murder. They wanted to bring the world's attention to the fact that Britain, you know, the British Empire, where the sun never sets, that it was not all it was cracked up to be in every case. They wanted to take people's attention away from the changing of the guard, the fountains, Buckingham Palace, tea and crumpets, and they wanted people to look at this reality of what was going on in Whitechapel and bring their attention to it, which 
they did. I hate to give them any credit, but they actually did do that. It was absolutely, if you want to look at it that way, a conspiracy. Um, people these days tend to frown upon the word conspiracy and they assign a tinfoil hat to anybody that proposes a conspiracy. But in actual fact, you know, you know, a conspiracy in the world of law enforcement and, and the court legal system, all a conspiracy is is a group of two or more people engaging in criminal activity. It happens and has happened thousands of times a day, if not an hour since 1888. So when you talk about a conspiracy, all it means is two guys deciding to work together to commit a crime. And that's exactly what, what this was. And I've got evidence to show that there were multiple killers and multiple people involved. So what, what you're describing, you know, now that I'm mulling it over in my head, is, is more of a killing cult who wanted to bring attention for a greater cause. Yes, exactly. You, that's, that's a very good way of putting it. Although I, 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 don't, I don't think that, you know, cult in, in the, sometimes we think of a cult as, as being drawn together by a religious cause. I think these guys were more of a, uh, the anarchist and socialist cause, but yes. Um, and, and there's been a history of, of multiple killers working, working together in history. We know about the Chicago Rippers, for example, the Hillside Stranglers, Bono and Bianchi in L.A., uh, Sherman Tyne and Herzog, the Gallegos, the couple, you know, the Fall River, uh, Massachusetts cult, you know, and even recently in the news you probably heard about this cannibal couple in Russia. I mean, there, there's been a, a history of, of groups of people working together to commit crimes. It's nothing new. It just may have been the first time it was really done back then, to any note. Now, let's talk about the crime itself. When did they start doing this on a regular basis, and how did they choose people? Well, they chose prostitutes. Right, but and was there a particular they, reason they, they, they would choose a certain prostitute or a certain person, certain... Was there an element to it other than just random? Or Yeah, well, well, what was I think the victimology? Cases, yeah. yeah, yeah, in some cases, yes. Always because they were prostitutes, but in most cases, I believe that Louis Diemschitz knew the victims, um, knew them because he was a costume jeweler by trade, and I've been able to show that at least two of my victims bought and resold costume jewelry for a living to try to avoid prostitution. That would be Martha Tabram and Annie Chapman. Both were documented as buying and reselling costume jewelry. Louis Diemschutz was a costume jeweler by trade. And by the way, Jack the Ripper was described by eyewitnesses as having been uh, covered in costume jewelry, a big gold chain with a big red jewel that couldn't have been real, and a big horseshoe tie pin. And by the way, when Louis Diemschutz was arrested six months later for a, a different crime, violent crime, where he beat a policeman to a bloody pulp and a bunch of other people, including women and children, um, he claimed not to be a costume jeweler anymore, but now he claimed to be a horseshoer. Okay, we've got two victims now. We've, we've got a possible connection, but w what about the others? I, I think what we're l really looking to get down to the bottom of it is what was their victimology? What made well, these the women stand out from all the other hundreds of prostitutes that were in the area? We, we've got well, two. Opportunity, just like any other serial killer. You know, Ted Bundy went went out to the park and sought out somebody that looked like, uh, you know, what he was looking for, and it was also opportunity. When he saw a girl in the parking lot go into her car and he pretended to be a security man, it, it wasn't, you know, any particular woman that he had selected. She just happened to come walking out. So a lot of it is opportunity. Um, when is the victim walking out when they need her, when they need, you know, where they need her? Um, prostitutes in the East End, all of them lived very, very close to where his club was, in what was called St. George's in the East, the area of Whitechapel. Um, most of them lived on or around George Street, which is where his club was, very close to. So he kept his horse and buggy stabled in George Yard Stable, where Martha Tabram was actually killed. Martha Tabram was shopping for costume jewelry the night of her death. So he had this connection, I believe he could have known many of them, through the idea of the, the reselling of costume jewelry, and also the fact that his wife, Samuel Friedman and Isaac Kozbrowski were all involved in the hat industry. They were all hat makers and shapers. And there's this odd hat connection in the Ripper crimes. As far as the victimology goes, we know that at least two of the victims bought hats within 24 hours of their death. And we know that at least two of the victims were found with their hats laying right next to their heads. So you wonder, well, wait a minute. This is where Dr. Henry Lee comes in. 
why is this woman's hat right next to her head, laid very neatly next to her head? Why didn't it fall off at the beginning of the struggle? And we believe it's because he may have taken their hat pin and let the hat fall after having killed them. And that would account for the hat falling right next to the head and its neat placement near the head. Also, the possibility of the taking of souvenirs. We know he took three costume jewelry rings from Annie Chapman, and Annie Chapman who bought and sold costume jewelry for, for a side living. So we know that he took three of her costume jewelry rings off her finger. So we know that the Ripper took souvenirs. So could he have taken hat pins? Maybe. It's not direct evidence. It certainly um, is a, an odd factor in the crimes. So yeah. was there a, a, a point or a reason for them to, uh, uh, like, you know, cut, cut the uterus out? Or I think it was part of, part of the sensationalism, and I think it was part of, I think that Isaac Kozabrowski, the one that we've proven to be the most brutal of the three, the 17, 18-year-old, the one who carved his initials into Catherine Eddowes' face three times. Um, he was the one that did the most brutal uh, aspects of the killings. And historically, there have been similar uh, personalities that have done similar things. We believe that Kozabrowski escalated his violence from having raped Emma Smith in Brick Lane and inserted some foreign object into her vagina that caused her death four days later. But... In the interim, she was able to describe three men that exactly fit the description of Kozbrowski, Friedman, and Dieschutz. Um, we believe that Kozbrowski was the one who was the more twisted, the one who actually enjoyed it, and the one who really got himself into it and, and got a twist or, or got, got a sort of a, a kick from the killings. The other two were primarily serve, serving a mission, a purpose. Did they choose who was going to kill at the time, or is it just particularly just the one? I think that um, from the evidence and from what we know, it seems that Diemschutz would be the one that would restrain the woman. Friedman would be the muscle that would stand guard. He was the man standing across the street from the double event with the, smoking the clay pipe that chased the witness away. And Kozbrowski was the one that did the, the primary murdering. We think that he was recruited through this uh, International Working Men's Educational Club, where he was a member. He was a very sort of easily influenced, malleable youth who probably looked up to, to Dean Schutz and possibly Friedman um, and would be would sort of follow their instructions and do what he was told, but came to enjoy the work, came to become more of a, a, a psychopath, become more... more uh, excited by the killings as they went, went on, and as is uh, witnessed or evidenced by the killing of Mary Jane Kelly. So if they wanted to make a statement by doing this, why didn't they, why did they space out the murders instead of do it all in, you know, in one night? For, and here's why I'm asking. Look how much attention that we've gotten on Las Vegas with just one man shooting all these multiple people. Well, three guys could only commit so many murders in one day, but that's not really the reason. The reason has to do with, remember I mentioned it was an attack on Christianity as well as political action. Now, every one of the killings I mentioned, all 13, occurred on nights that are called Theotokos nights. Now, the Theotokos is the, is the Greek name for Mother Mary. In the Theotokos, 12 great feasts are celebrated in Russia by the Eastern Liturgical Christians. In the Eastern Liturgical Bible, there are 12 great feasts of the Theotokos in a year. All of the murders took place on Theotokos nights, of which there are only 12. That means that two of them took place on September 8th, a year apart, because they ran out of Theotokos days. So what, if you look at, I know it sounds crazy, but you look, at for, look it up for yourself. There are 12 great feasts of the Theotokos that are practiced in the Eastern Liturgical Bible. You'll recall that I mentioned Prince Kropotkin, who organized and funded this operation. Prince Kropotkin's mother was a princess, Ekaterina uh, Kropotkin, in Russia, and she built and funded a church of the Theotokos in her hometown, Ryazan, if I'm pronouncing that right, in, in Russia. Now, the Theotokos, the, the greatest of the 12 feasts, is called the Feast of the Intercession of the Theotokos, that is the day when Mother Mary goes to bat for all sinners. 
Now, that is the greatest of the 12 feasts, and that is the church that Kropotkin's mother built in their hometown. The night of the double event was the night of the intercession of the Theotokos. All the other 13 murders that we've identified as ripper killings took place on the other 11 nights of the Theotokos, one of them September 8th, twice on the same night, a year apart. Now, I went to a mathematics professor, and I told him, if I gave you 13 murders that took place in the span of three years less two days, and they all took place on Theotokos nights, two of them on the same night, in fact, a year apart, what would the odds against that being a coincidence be? And he said, after some calculation, that the figure doesn't have a name, but it is expressed by a seven, followed by 15 zeros to one, against it being a coincidence. Therefore, we can assume, more than assume, that it was actually done on purpose. Now, that can all be substantiated. You can see all that on my website. It sounds crackpot, I know, but it's a fact. All of those murders took place on Theotokos nights. But, I mean, it's and, fascinating. How, how did you make that connection? Well, I'll tell you. And, I, and people always ask me why someone else didn't before me. Here's how I did it. I started looking at all the, the murder dates, and I connected the murders in, in a different way, not because of the Theotokos. I connected them through MO and Opportunity. But when I looked at the dates, what I did was, and your, your listeners can do the same thing, you take the dates of all the murders, and just enter the date into Google. Don't put the year. Just put the date. So you put in, for example, you take Catherine Eddowes, the, the, the double event, and you go, uh, 30th of September, 1888. What's special? Or just not without, without the 1888. 30th of September. What's special about that? You Google it. And Google will say, 30th September, um, National Secretary's Day, National Give Your Dog a Bath Day, um, Zimbabwe Independence Day. I'm making this up. <laughs> yes. And the hot. Finally, at the bottom, Feast of the Holy Theotokos Intercession in the Eastern Liturgical Bible. So I look at that and I go, I don't know what that is. All right. So then I Google another one. I go, well, let's do Annie Chapman, you know, 8th of September. I told you two murders took place on the 8th of September. So I Google 8th of September, and it says, you know, National uh, Parakeet Day, uh, you know, give your parakeet a bath day, whatever. Uh, bring your dog to school. And at the end it said, Feast of the Holy Theotokos. So I'm like, all right, well, that's odd. And then I go on and on and on, and I continue down the line, and every one of them is coming up with this Theotokos thing, which I don't know what it is. So I said, well, all right, let's Google Theotokos. And it says Mother Mary. It's the Russian uh, Eastern Liturgical Bible's view of Mother Mary, Mother of Jesus. Okay. And there's a picture of Mother Mary standing there with her arms out, palms forward, exactly with her head turned, just the way that Catherine Eddowes was positioned in Mitre Square, you know, laying down. But instead of a baby Jesus in the middle of her tummy, there's a missing uterus. There's a big gaping hole. Oh. And Mitre Square, Mitre, you know what Mitre means? It's the hat the Pope wears. They wanted to spill tainted blood on the head of the head of the Christian church. Mitre Square. So I thought, wait a minute, this is getting weirder by the minute. So I continue to Google every single one of my murders and attacks were Theotokos days. So I'm saying, all right, this is, all right, maybe every day is a Theotokos day. Maybe every day. So I Google my birthday, not a Theotokos day. I Google my mom's birthday, not a Theotokos day. I Google today's day, not a Theotokos So then I Google, you know, more about Theotokos, and I find out there are only 12 Theotokos days in a year in Russia, only 12. And they are the 12 days that the women were murdered. Uh, what, what's some of the physical evidence that you've uh, sort of tied to these three gentlemen? Well, if you talk about physical evidence, there isn't a lot of physical evidence, but there is one bit you could call physical evidence. If you recall, um, a police constable, Drage, P.C. Drage, found a knife, which was, they described it as like a candle maker's knife. They couldn't really make out what kind of knife it was, but they found a bloody knife wrapped in cloth um, very, very close to Samuel Friedman's house. He had a map up I could show you. But I believe that Samuel Friedman took this knife with him from the double event and ran with it and dumped it on the street on the most direct route back to his home from Mitre Square. That knife, although we don't have it, we do know the description of it, and it's very close to the description of the, what's called a shalef knife that's used by uh, 
kosher butchers. They're called shochet when they perform a type of ritual killing of animals called a shichita. Mm -hmm. That knife looked a lot like a shalef knife, and it was found in a bloody knife wrapped in cloth. Like I said, just probably, um, I'm going to say, less than a quarter of a mile from Samuel Friedman's front door. So physical evidence, that's physical, but there's plenty of circumstantial and direct evidence, though. What, what, what do you think the people would be most surprised about um, when they read your book? Like, what's, what's going to be something that sticks out? Um, I think if I were to tell you either, either the fallacies in Louis Diemschitz's statements, the man who found the body, or probably the, the startling coincidences between the double event and the crime that Dean Schutz and the other three, well, actually, his wife as well, were arrested for six months later. If I were to describe those coincidences for you, you would probably, they, your readers would probably sit up and take notice. That and the fact that um, Samuel Friedman had a rape conviction in 1886, two years before the killings. What do you think about any of the current um, theories out there about... Uh... Jack the Ripper. Uh, intriguing, but lacking evidence. Well, Randy, where can folks get a copy of your book? Uh, it's available on Amazon, uh, you know, whether it's UK or, or uh, USA site. It's also, if anyone goes to my Facebook page, it's Randy Williams versus Jack the Ripper, no spaces, VS, Jack the Ripper. Um, there's all kinds of links on my page. Uh, there's all kinds of ways to find it. Now, if somebody believes that they have a discovery or they have some evidence that they'd like to offer, you know, to further your research, where would they go? Would they just go to your webpage? Oh, yeah, go to my page. Absolutely. I welcome that. You know, I've got a lot of people that do come in with questions and comments, and some people do offer little bits of evidence. Somebody just today um, had some information uh, on, on Tumblety. Uh, his great-great-grandfather was Tumblety, and he had some, some pictures he's sending me. Even though I don't believe it was Tumblety, he's a footnote in the case. Louis Deemschutz, as I said, was the steward of this of the club where the, the and found the body of Liz Stride in front of his club, the International Working Man's Club, which educational club, which wasn't an educational club. Now, six months later, uh, in March of 1889, Deemschutz, Kozbrowski, Friedman, and Deemschutz's wife were arrested. What happened was Deemschutz led a march, a socialist march, from the club, and he led them to Mitre Square. Now. The reason he led them to Midas Square wasn't because of the murder, ostensibly, but it was because the club's worst enemy, his name was Chief Rabbi Dr. Adler, had his synagogue, the great synagogue, directly in front of Midas Square. In fact, that's where Catherine Eddowes was seen talking to a stranger by Joseph Leland and Harry Harris and uh, Joseph Hyams. So she was actually nabbed from in front of that synagogue. So Dean Schutz takes his group, marches to the front of the synagogue, and Dr. Adler comes out and chases them away and calls the police. In the melee outside the, the synagogue, a man is beaten to a bloody pulp. A man, the man's name was Israel Sunshine. Now, this is something I discovered myself recently. Israel Sunshine lived at 116-119 Goulston Street. If you're familiar with that address, that's the address where the Goulston Street graffito was left. The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. It was written on Israel Sunshine's front doorstep. He was the one beaten by them out in front of Adler's church. Then Adler chased them away. The police were called. The police came to the club where Dean Schutz and company were beating people in the crowd, including women and children, with sticks and frying pans. PC Police Constable Joseph Frost answered the case, along with Harris and Sherrington and some other constables. And my, four, my three men dragged him into the, to the exact spot inside the gateway where Stride's body had been found and beat him to a bloody pulp on the exact spot where they dragged, for my money, Elizabeth Stride. Beat him to a pulp. When the other policemen finally subdued these guys, Dean Schutz's wife came out and jumped on Police Constable Frost and started beating on him with a hair broom, and she was arrested. Mm -hmm. Now, this is the woman who Dean Schutz said was a delicate constitution flower of a woman that he didn't want to panic when he found the body of Liz Stride, he said, well, I didn't want to go in and announce there might be a drunk or dead woman because my, my wife is very delicate of constitution and would probably faint and so forth. So here's this, uh, this picture that he's drawn on the night of the double event of his wife. And how does that contrast with this Helion 
who jumps on the back of a policeman and starts beating on him with a stick and pulling his hair. So this started getting my attention because we've got these weird coincidences between this crime that they're arrested for. We've got three crime scenes tied in. The, the Stride crime scene, the Eddowes crime scene, and the Goulson Street Graffito crime scene. We've got two enemies of the IWMEC, Dr. Adler, Rabbi Dr. Adler, and Israel Sunshine. So it's a, it was a very compelling thing for me to start looking at these guys. That's what really got me onto them. Um, because it's very important for your, your listeners to understand why Dean Schutz makes a, 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 such a great suspect in this case. Number one, I mentioned about the fake name. I mean, I found 12 different ways he spelled his name, which isn't even a real Russian surname. But, you know, uh, he couldn't even remember how to spell it from one day to the next because it, it wasn't his real name. He was very educated. He spoke Russian and English and Yiddish and understood Hebrew. So he was very educated. He found the body along with the other three I mentioned. He was a custom jeweler, and I mentioned the fact that Tabram and Chapman bought and resold custom jewelry, as well as the fact that there's some suspicion on our part that Hatkins were taken, and we know that Catherine, or we know that uh, Annie Chapman's rings were taken. They were custom jewelry. Um, we know that he was covered in costume jewelry, as described by eyewitnesses. This big gold chain red jewel that couldn't be real, and the horseshoe tie pin. Now, his story, uh, that when he came home, his horse shied from this dead body in the dark, in the pitch black, where you couldn't even see your hand in front of your face. Listen, I run a horse farm. Horses don't see much better in the dark than you or I. And a horse that goes to market, where there's butchers selling meat and people screaming, a horse that goes to market is not going to shy away from a woman's body 12 feet away against the wall with very little blood, still warm, laying in the gutter. The horse won't stop. But if you want to say that the horse would, then Dean Schutz's story is that he jumps off the horse and starts looking at this body and prodding it with, with a, his whip. Okay, a horse that is startled by something doesn't just stand there while you jump off the cart and check no. something out. It bolts. No, it's, it's going to run away. It bolts. So you can't have it both ways. Either the horse wasn't startled or the horse didn't just stand there. But read his story. Now, more than, you know, more than anything, in law enforcement we call um, certain types of statements leakage. There's something we call cognitive complexity. It makes it difficult to keep a story straight, and it causes inconsistencies. So Dean Schutz's story is full of them. When he talked to the police, for example, he would say, and, and at the inquest where he testified, he would say, uh, she had grapes in one hand, candies in the other. Then he would say, oh, her hands were crossed over her breast. Then, oh, I didn't see her hands. So which one was it? They're all inconsistent. He would say to the police, I lifted the body while Kozbrowski lit a candle. Then later, Kozbrowski lifted the body while I lit a candle. You know, and then another time, I didn't touch the body. Then he would say it was exactly 1 o'clock, when we know it was 20 to 1, even by Kozbrowski's statement and the police statements. You know, he, there was these inconsistencies. But worse than that, he had two pieces of what we call guilty knowledge, meaning he knew details of the crime that were not known to the general public and could only be known by someone with some either knows the perpetrator or is the perpetrator. Now, let me tell you what they are. First of all, he and Kozbrowski were the only two that said the woman had grapes in one hand and candies in the other. In fact, she had candies in one hand, but the grapes were way away from the body laying in the gutter, and the police and the doctors did not connect those grapes to the murders. Only three days later, when two private detectives hired by George Lusk, the guy that got the From Hell letter, they went there to the to Duckfield's yard, and they found the bloody grapes. Now, Dean Schutz and Kozabrowski knew about those grapes the day of the murder, the morning when the sun came up and they were being interviewed by the newspaper. By the way, in their newspaper, they were gloating about how the British newspapers were funding their terrorism by, by paying to see the crime scene and paying for their testimony and paying for them to stand there and pose for drawings. But in any case... Dean Schutz knew about the grapes, and so did Kozbrodsky. No one else ever saw them. And finally, Dean Schutz, uh, not finally, but in this case, Dean Schutz said in his statement to the police, you can find it for yourself, the listeners can look it up. He said in his statement, the woman I found was dressed quite a bit better than the woman that was last killed, meaning Annie Chapman. Here's the problem with that statement. How did he know how Annie Chapman was dressed? Right, right. I didn't know how she was. Her clothes were, were destroyed, covered in blood. There were never any pictures of Annie Chapman printed in the newspapers. And or if there was any, any photo, it was only her face. 
And there was a picture of her dressed really, really nicely with her husband at her, I think, her wedding. And and that's the only, those are the only pictures in existence of Annie Chapman. So I want to know how did Dean Schitt's know that this one, who he said he only saw in the pitch black under the, the light of a match, how did he know she was dressed quite a bit better than Annie Chapman? Well, because he killed her. That's how he knew. Because he walked with both of them and he knew how they were dressed. But he said it. He he basically stepped on his beat and and made this mistake in the newspapers. And there's no taking it back. It's right there in black and white the day after the murder. Your, your listeners can actually see for themselves. I'm not making this up. There's some information for everybody. Ask your viewers to also look at the pictures Dean Schutz posed for the morning of the murders. He had a full beard, as did Jewish men in those days. But look at the police drawing of Dean Schutz three days later when he appeared at the inquest, clean-shaven. Why did he shave off his beard? The Torah forbids the shaving of the beard. Uh, except under extreme circumstances. Now, we know that P.C. William Smith saw the Ripper speaking to Elizabeth Stride on the street corner near the International Working Men's Educational Club and gave a pretty darn good description of Dean Schutz as he appeared in the drawing he posed for, for the newspaper, with a full beard and everything else. But Dean Schutz, I believe, saw the newspapers the next morning and said, oh, my God, I was spotted by this cop. He's going to be at the inquest. So how does a man change his, his appearance? Okay, yes. women, they dye their hair, they put makeup on, but what does a man do? Grows or shaves a beard. And that's what Dean Schitt's did. Against yeah. the, the, the Torah. Against the, the, the law of the Torah. And by the way, he said he was coming back from work that day when he found the body. That also doesn't ring true, because guess what? That day was the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, starting at sundown the night before. Jewish men aren't supposed to go to work that day. So it doesn't really hold much truth that he went off to work at the market that day. And you can drastically change your appearance by shaving your beard off. I well, mean, he did. Look at the drawing on my website yeah. that he posted for, and then look at the one he, that the uh, court reporter drew of him. And, and all of these details are in your book? In my book and on my website. Okay. Now let's give the listeners your website. What's your website right now for everybody? On Facebook, it is Randy Williams versus VS Jack the Ripper, no spaces. And the book is called Sherlock Holmes and the Autumn of Terror. We really appreciate you taking the time and recommend everybody to pick up the book. It'll be on our website as well. Thanks for being here, Randy Williams. Thank you for having me, gentlemen. Randy, thank you. Thank you very much. To find out more about our show, guests, or listen to a previous show, visit our website at www.somethingweirdmedia.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.